running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. My name is Ian Bird, and this is my series of horror mystery short stories about a plague of catastrophe that looks like a cannibal witch ghoul you spot out of the corner of your eye. So far in the series, we've had a traumatic visit to a lawyer, a millennium party that ended in an attack by zombie celebrities, a kidnap spurred on by Lovecraftian paranoia, a visit to an Icelandic cemetery, a garden full of corpses, all manner of hideous job offers, untrustworthy circuses, and health and safety literally going mad. This is the 13th short story in the series, and it's called Hain Reaction. These next nine stories are all completely standalone, so you don't need to have listened to earlier instalments to follow along. You can find the whole set, though, at www.boneditch.wordpress.com if you're curious. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the story. Gobbit 13. Hain Reaction. The young girl's name was Turby Spinach. She sat in the sun, the blazing sun, and glared at the dog. The animal was snarling at her every time she tried to get under the tree and into the shade alongside him. Usually her dog was friendly, but this time he was refusing to share his tree or his shade. Turby glowered, but the dog had longer teeth. He continued to dig and pour at the ground, pausing only to make sure that the girl wasn't getting any closer. She should leave, she should just go home. But then her dad would just shout at her that she should have brought the dog home, and he'd send her all the way back. Or belt her before he sent her all the way back, and then she should be stuck with the dog, hot and bruised and tired, back where she started. She stood up and took a step towards the tree. Come on, boy. The dog turned to face her and snarled again, making eye contact just the same way that her father did. She sat back down again. The dog went back to digging in the dirt under the tree. Her head was aching. It had been aching all day, but now it was impossible. It was all impossible. She fell asleep, or stumbled asleep, then woke with a start. The dog had trotted over to her and had something in his mouth. He wanted to show off. When he realised that Toby was awake, he wagged his tail and dropped the object on the floor down in front of her. Even caked in dirt, the jewel still glittered in the sun. The jewel was set in a ring, which was pushed up the finger of a hand. A finger was missing from that hand, as was the rest of its body. Toby looked at the severed hand and then up into her dog's face. "'You'll never believe what else I found down there,' said the dog, with a voice like a madman hammering nails at midnight. She hated to do it, but she'd really wanted that ring, and the dog had just refused to let her have it. Not letting her share the shade, that was bad enough, but taunting her with the ring, that was something else. Ten minutes later, as she reached the highway, she hid the ring in her pocket and tossed the bloodied fence post into the undergrowth. She wiped the blood spray from her face. No one would give her a ride if it looked like she'd just bludgeoned a dog to death. She reached the highway and sat down again, exhausted. Turby spinach was tired a lot. It was probably because she didn't get a lot to eat, but the fact that her nights were full of wild dreams didn't help. Some morning she would wake up convinced that she had been having adventures from the second she put her head down on the pillow to the second her dad started hammering on her bedroom wall for her to fetch his breakfast. Wild adventures. Across the road stood another hitchhiker. This one was a man in a long brown coat that reached to the ground. On his head was a wide-brimmed slouch hat and at his booted feet was a tattered backpack. He waved at her and she waved back, a little coyly. He was cute, but if he got any closer she'd scream and probably try to cut him. She'd probably cut him before she screamed, just to be sure. Turby wasn't always like this in her head, but she'd been hurting animals for a while, and once you started hurting things, it could be hard to stop. It wasn't like what her dad said, when you just had to jerk it out to get it out of your system to set you back to normal. No, in Turby's experience, once you started, you kept going until you ran out of things to hurt. 
It was like eating chocolate. You didn't ever have enough chocolate. You just ran out of chocolate. The hitchhiker crossed the road and smiled at her. Turby smiled and slipped her fingers around the knife in her back pocket. Sweetie, I'm sorry to bother you, but I saw your shoes and I just had to tell you how pretty they are. Turby glanced down at her battered red sneakers. These shoes? she said, confused. They're just so red. They're just so, so darned red. Pardon my French. That's not French, said Turby. The hitchhiker's name was Joe Chocolate, and about an hour later he decided to walk a ways to find a new spot to catch a ride. It wouldn't do for him to be left waiting by that fresh shallow grave and have some do-gooder stumble over them both. As he walked he put his hand into his coat pocket and slipped his fingers into the little girl's beautiful red shoe. It was still warm from her precious little foot. He had made sure to get a little bit of her blood onto the shoe. It would dry a much darker red, set off the bright scarlet of the canvas treat. He couldn't ever carry his trophies very far, it would make his luggage impractical, so every month or so he'd get blind drunk and sentimental and have a bonfire, out in the middle of nowhere. He had been born and bred in the middle of nowhere, it was where he felt at home, to this day. He carried a little piece of nowhere in his heart, wherever he went. He was in his early seventies now, and he had been doing this for just over fifty years, but you wouldn't know it to look at him. He was lean and muscular, and the sun had turned his skin into a tanned, cracked and beaten leather. There were permanent crinkles around his eyes, crow's feet, he liked that expression, which made it look like he was always smiling. Truth be told, Joe was usually smiling. He hadn't a care in the world, and hadn't had one for half a century. He always slept like the dead, never went hungry, never had a single nightmare. More than one person said he looked like Iggy Pop, and he liked the comparison. It was a rare day when he didn't find himself singing The Passenger at some point, a wily, foxy smile on his lips. Joe Chocolate had dropped out of the University of Texas in the early 60s, after the Kennedy shooting down the highway in Dallas, but before the Whitman shooting was on campus. It had been an ugly time, and Joe had found himself sinking further and further into despair and anger. He had been such a happy-go-lucky kid, and hadn't expected university to make him so, so damn cross all the damn time. Every conversation turned into an argument in those days. Even conversations with people you agreed with got confrontational over the degree to which everyone was appalled by what they agreed were furious about. At some point he had realised that for the sake of his own sanity he just had to get away from it all. He had been 19 years old and his folks had spent a lot of money setting him up for university. They had been pretty mad about him leaving it behind. Forcing Dad to withdraw what cash was left in the bank and then burning down their house seemed the only sensible thing to do in the face of all that hostility. Yes, that had indeed been a stressful couple of days, but as soon as he had vaulted up into that first truck cabin and told the driver he was just heading north, he had felt free and easy. More than 50 years later, and sometimes he still looked into the wing mirrors, expecting to see a trail of smoke rising up into the sky behind him, an empty flagpole marking the end of a doomed empire. Good times. And good times had followed. His new empire was much more amenable. He was the emperor of these United States, and he was never stuck for a meal or a bed for the night, or day if he had slipped into nocturnalism for whatever reason. People seemed to recognise him, instinctively get along with him. They'd offer him a ride, tell him their stories, then give him absolutely everything he asked for, just in exchange for a few more hours' life. And then, as if by the authority of some unimpeachable imperial edict, his other subjects would just refuse to recognise him, just turn the other way to allow him to leave his murder scene in peace. It was all about peace. Fifty-three years, about twelve or thirteen killings a year, that was just shy of seven hundred. You could fill a nice little town with seven hundred people. What would you call it? Murder town? Killville? A truck, a huge 18-wheeler, cruised to a stop in front of him. Joe Chocolate sauntered up to the cabin as a huge red round face peered down at him. Where are you headed, old man? 
said the cheery tomato face. North, said Joe with a smile. Climb aboard. Joe removed his hat and coat and stretched out in the cabin. These cabins always looked small from the road, but they were roomy inside. Joe especially liked the little sleep nooks behind the seats. They were the best. You look like you've been doing this for a while, old man, said the driver. The name's Joe, and yes, sir, indeed I have. It's a pretty fine way to see the country. Good to know you, Joe. I'm Bill. I have to say, I think I prefer my way. Higher and faster. Well, that's how it should be, Bill. Got to be happy with your choices in life. His voice trailed off as the traffic sign ahead caught his eye. They were entering Grayville County. Grayville. What? Nothing, Bill. The name of the place just tickled me some. Bill slammed on the brakes, though, and just then Joe Chocolate flew forward in his seat, banging his forehead on the dashboard. He was instantly knocked out. Stop screaming, Turkey. No one's going to hear you. Joe Chocolate was hanging upside down from his ankles. His wrists were bound and shackled to the floor, next to a basin that was gradually filling with his own blood. He was in a small compartment. He, he guessed a part of the truck's massive trailer. He guessed a soundproof part of the truck's massive trailer. He was naked and bleeding from his forehead and left thigh. The forehead wound was from the dashboard. The thigh wound was from where Bill had carved himself some lunch. Bill was sitting on the other side of the compartment, chewing on Joe's leg. You are an old turkey, you really are, laughed Bill. I thought if I carved you thin enough you'd get like, you know, like that fruity carpaccio stuff. But you're so, so damn rough and tough. You ain't turkey, you're jerky. What are you anyway, sixty something? Joe stopped wailing and caught his breath. I'm seventy-one. Christ, I feel almost bad. Shouldn't your kids be looking after you? I don't have any kids. Bill stood up and waddled over to Joe. He carved a little more from the old man, this time from his tricep. He peeled back the skin and lifted a thick stake of hard-won muscle right off Joan's bone. Joe howled while Bill switched on a small ventilator unit on the side of the compartment, then lit a gas barbecue stove. I'd usually do this outside, confessed Bill, but we're so close to town I didn't want to disturb anyone with all your hollering, and I didn't want to have to share you none neither. He stirred some butter into a black iron skillet and melted it over the gas flame. When the pan was nice and hot, he pressed Joe's muscle down onto it with an ancient-looking fork. Loyal to the rest of his body, the meat screamed and hissed. They're going to get you. You do know that, don't you? They'll track you down and then they'll get you. Bill laughed, a merry, bubbling, fat man laugh, and didn't look up once from his skillet. Who will, Joe? You don't have any kids, remember? My subjects, you ingrate, my subjects. They love me and they'll hate you. They'll hate you for hell for what you've done to me. Are you going a little crazy there, Hoss? Don't be embarrassed, that does happen a lot. You wouldn't believe some of the shit I've heard over the years. Tell you what, Bill continued, I usually like the first steak to be rare, but don't be embarrassed about this either. I think we're going to have to have you well done, don't you think? He wandered back to Joe and picked up the basin beneath him. He swilled the thick, bruised blood around for a second, then poured some into the skillet along with the steak. It bubbled black, hissing like a rattlesnake, and Bill smacked his lips. Say... Did I never tell you you look like Iggy Pop? Yes, said Joe. I love the Stooges, said Bill. I am the passenger, and I ride, and I ride, and I ride. Shut up, said Joe. What does that mean? That, what does that bit mean later on, though? See the city's rip backside. It's a bit weird, ain't it? Just shut up, Joe said again. It does give me an idea, though, grinned Bill. Does it give you an idea? You're a piece of shit. Bill laughed. Come on now, don't be sore. I'm not so bad. I'll do you a deal. I'll only eat you while you're still living. How about that? Yeah, that's fair, ain't it? I hate eating alone. Second you go up the ghost, 
I'll give you a nice Christian burial. And Joe Chocolate screamed and yelled and swore some more and got himself good and angry, all bent out of shape. Although that was something Bill was doing to him pretty well as well. And all of it is yours and mine, sang Bill. And all of it is yours and mine. Let's ride and ride and ride and ride. But that hitchhiker wasn't sitting right. A couple of hours later, he sat there and thought, no, that hitchhiker's not sitting right. Too much of a bad thing, maybe. It had started as a joke, only to eat the hitchhiker while he'd been alive. But the old man just hadn't died. Bill had been at him for hours. The fat old sociopath had been genuinely fascinated to see how much he would get to shovel down before his meal up and died. But as fillet was followed by sirloin, was followed by chops, was followed by sausage meat, it had become a chore, actually even an ordeal. The meat had become coarser, heavier. It had clung to bone, turned into organs. And still, Joe had screamed and lived. You take what you like, Bill had been taught as a child, but you eat what you take. Bill burped up something loud and deep, something had been walking and talking eight hours previous, and ordered another pitcher of beer from the barmaid. On any other night, he'd have flirted with her, licked his lips, grabbed a quick feel to test the quality, but just then he felt the bad kind of bloated, stuffed and turned off. He recognised the sensation. Oh, God, fuck it, he was getting old. This was what happened when you died on pensioners. You are what you eat. Bill supposed it was his own fault. He'd eaten his first person nine years before, when he had accidentally knocked down a teenager out way too late. Bill had been terrified, guilt-stricken and nauseated, on his knees and weeping as he had stared in red-eyed grief at the dead child in front of him. It had been over. It had all been over for both of them. But then that kid had twitched. Blood had fountained up in the air from a pressurised artery suddenly released, and glassy, vague eyes had found enough focus to look back up at Bill. Bill had been overwhelmed with gratitude and love just then, overrun with compassion for this kid he'd run over. He'd cradled the child in his arms, ignoring every first aid rule he'd ever been taught, whispering to him that they were going to both be okay, it was all going to be fine, just fine. And then, then Bill had found himself kissing the kid's face, the kid's mouth. Bill had tried to tell himself he was giving mouth to mouth, but that was just for the sake of appearances. Bill had known that he was genuinely kissing the teenager. The blood from the kid's wounds had flooded into his mouth, and Bill had swallowed, and then he had bitten. Bill knew whose fault it had been, his wife's, his bloody wife. His bloody wife had cut meat out of his diet just before, and had tried to tell him that it was for his own good. He was getting fat, meat wasn't good for his cholesterol or some such shit. Never-ending bullshit, that had been his life in those days. So Bill had taken a bite, and who could blame him? And then he had taken another and another. His first red meat in about a year and a half, in fact. Fucking divine. All the time he'd been promising the kid he'd take care of it all. No one was going to get really hurt. It would all be okay in the end. By the time the kid had died, ten or so minutes later, Bill had managed to get the lower half of the kid's face and almost the whole right shoulder into his belly. Once the kid was dead, he'd felt awful again. Suddenly he wasn't saving a life. He was stuffing his face with takeout. Small wonder he'd felt that he had had no choice but to wrap up the remains leftovers, in that blanket in the back of his car and drive them out into the desert to dispose of. Small wonder he had started applying for jobs in the long-haul freight business the very next day. That bloody wife had divorced him shortly after. She'd been lucky, Bill had growled on more than one occasion over an empty stomach. He belched again and felt the hitchhiker rise up in his belly. Christ, that wasn't natural. Enough was enough. He swilled back the last of his beer and headed out the back door of the bar for some air. 
The night was warm and dark, and the stench of the vehicle fumes hanging by the highway made Bill gag still further. The poison was trapped in the hot air, just as the hitchhiker was trapped in his stomach. Except all of a sudden, that hiker wasn't really that trapped anymore. Bill fell to his knees as a rancorous belch became a fetid escape attempt. His stomach convulsed and up came a wave of meat and bile, a poisonous and wet anatomy lesson that you could smell. The barmaid and a young man wearing the same piercings as her wandered up, laughing. Jeez, dude, just say no. The barmaid lit a cigarette to hide the smell, just as her boyfriend let out a piercing shriek. There... In the butcher's shop window of Bill's last meal lay three intact fingers. No, gasped Bill. It's fine. It's just a joke. Just ate something that disagreed with me. The barmaid sucked on her cigarette and dialed a number on her phone while her boyfriend shrieked again. The police were there before night-crawling varmints could scuttle in and devour all the evidence and Bill was behind bars before daybreak. He was offered a chance to see a doctor, which he turned down, preferring instead to lie still and quiet in the overlit cell. These places, he knew from several drunken disorderly arrests over the years, were usually hideously noisy, but this time the zoo of jail cells were almost peaceful. Bill closed his eyes in gratitude, his nervousness at this, his change in situation offset slightly by the relief that his stomach was no longer heaving. Besides, he knew that the reason everyone was so quiet was because of him. Word had spread among the other prisoners that a cannibal had been brought in. There was one other man sharing Bill's cell, a seven-foot refrigerator with neo-Nazi tattoos on his bold, scared face. Bill took undeniable pleasure in the fact that the Nazi was as far as he could get and was constantly stealing glances in his direction to check that Bill wasn't licking his lips or otherwise getting his appetite back up again. He stayed there for about three hours before the sheriff wandered up to his cell door. Mr. William Masterson, he drawled. That'll be me, old hoss, Bill smiled. Old Hoss is my daddy, Mr. Marston. You can call me Sheriff Richie Beauregard. On your feet, please. It's time for us to put two and two together. Bill rolled off his bunk, trying not to gag as the bilious stench that had been clinging to his clothes spread bat wings and flew up at him. He caught the Nazi staring and slipped him a wink. We should have lunch, boy, Bill grinned as he left the cell. Beauregard was a good old boy Bill recognised from a couple of summer county barbecues over the years. Career cop, not a dyed-in-the-wall lawman. Good length of bone, but only the absolute bare minimum in his spine. The sheriff would go tough, Bill reckoned, but he'd be too decent to be able to sink any hooks into him. This civil servant would be spending every fourth thought trying to figure out how to get out of spending any more time with this puke-cake man-eating fat boy white trash. The trick would be to prick-tease enough horrors now to buy some time to get things straight in his head, get some kind of strategy organised with his lawyer. One of the first things Bill had ever done upon starting his new dietary regime had been to help his attorney with an issue he had had with his lady's ex. The lawyer was of the belief that good old Bill had taken the piece of shit who wouldn't stop tassling his lady on an unanticipated trip to Alaska and assured him that there were further places to go if he didn't get with the programme. Since the lawyer had never heard from the ex ever again, he had assumed he owed Bill a favour, but once he heard from Sheriff Richie Nobles here about Bill's finger-licking habits, he might put two and two together and push the boat out for a really quite sterling defence. Nope, none of this was ideal, but Bill wasn't too worried. The deputy ahead of them both unlocked and opened a door, and Bill and the sheriff stepped through. The deputy closed the door on them, and Bill heard the lock bolt. They were standing in a basement. The centre of the basement was brightly illuminated by a single spot lamp, but the rest was shadowy. In the centre of the spot was a thin, civilised-looking man in an expensive three-piece suit. His hands were behind his back, and there was a thin smile on his face. Bill thought he recognised the guy. 
The sheriff doffed his hat in his direction. Mr. Masterton, have you met Dr. Vivian Oubliette? He's been very kindly consulting on several serious violent crime cases over the last three or four years. He's a psychiatrist, but don't let that put you off. Hello, Doctor. Sheriff, smiled Dr. Oubliette in response. I'm not really in the mood for a psych profile, Sheriff, said Bill. I'm not still altogether sure what I'm doing here. Have you checked out that barbecue stand I told you about yet? Beauregard laughed. Oh, the good doctor isn't here to diagnose you, boy. Oh, no, my friend Agent Danvers brought Dr. Oubliette in because of her shared enthusiasm. Isn't that right, Jack? A tall man, whose every fibre screamed FBI, stepped out of the shadows of the room and walked over to the doctor. Only now did Bill notice that the scar beneath the doctor's eye looked recently scored. Richie, good of you to put this on. Agent Danvers reached behind the doctor and retrieved a pair of handcuffs. Dr. Oubliette brought his hands forward, rubbing where the cuffs had been locked too tightly around his slender wrists. Thank you, Jack, that's much better, said the amiable doctor. What's happening, boys? Bill asked. The door behind them opened and the deputy ushered in another policeman, this one accompanying a man in a minister's suit and collar. Freddy boy, good to see you. How's the trip? The new arrival shook hands with Beauregard and Danvers. We had a pretty good run down from Chicago, Richie, but this one would not stop bawling the whole time. The man, dressed as a minister, looked as if he had been crying. Excuse me, said Dr. Oubliette. I think you're Father Yavik Knurkian, aren't you? I have an associate who helped to brief the Whitaker children. From their descriptions, I thought you'd be taller. Knurkian sniffed. I am taller, he said. And, of course, I thought you'd have horns. I do have horns. Fellas, said Bill, what's going on? All I know is that I had some bad barbecue and now it's a lodge meeting for the grand old dodos or some such. Shut up, Bill, said the sheriff, and save your energy. We're a much older lodge than that. I'd take the sheriff's advice, Mr. Masterton, said Dr. Oubliette. I sense he's on his best behaviour. The door opened and shut several more times over the next half hour. As they waited, the lawman stood chatting in the shadows while Bill and the psychiatrist and the minister and then later the introverted, scholarly-looking fellow with the neat beard, the teenager in the long black overcoat, and finally a man in clown makeup stood under the spotlight together. "'I think we're all here, Richie,' said a cop in the NYPD uniform. "'Shut up, Gillespie. I come to your precinct until he had to plant evidence.' The six lawmen laughed together. "'Come on,' said one of the lawmen, a tall man with ex-military haircut, California tan and badly bruised knuckles. "'It's getting late.' "'You aren't wrong,' said Beauregard. "'Fair play to you.' "'Right, then.' He walked back to the door and knocked twice. The deputy on the other side unlocked it and saluted. "'We're ready, son,' said Beauregard. The deputy passed his superior a large canvas hold-all, saluted again, and shut and locked the door. The other five policemen started clapping. Bill and his five new companions tensed, and the sheriff opened the bag and started passing baseball bats out to his colleagues.' The police handed the bats to those people, the prisoners, that they had brought with them. Same rules as ever, boys, said Beauregard. Ten minute tourney. If there's one left standing, we'll take him off and wish him luck. If more than one is left standing, we dashing boys in blue will put a bullet in every single survivor's fucking head. No bets lower than 500 bucks, and we got ourselves a good old-fashioned battle infernal. The teenager in the long black overcoat started to cry. I don't understand. Jesus, said Sheriff Beauregard, just listen to Yee Wee Spree Killer. Son, everyone in the world thinks you're already dead. Three different ATF agents, as well as my good friend here, have already reported seeing you blow your own brains out once you'd helped your school pal shuffle off this mortal coil. So, think of this as your big break. You wanted to be a bastard, didn't you? Didn't you want to be a big old bastard? Well, here you go. We got you a shit ton of bastards to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with. This fat fuck, 
Beauregard gestured to Bill. He's an actual cannibal. That one's a true-to-life terrorist. Dude over there? Well, he don't like to kill anyone more than three feet tall, do you, father? But he's still what I would call infamous. The clown started to laugh, wet and bubbling. I've not forgotten about you, Bobo. Just ain't sure exactly what in the fuck you are. You probably know, don't you, Doctor? Dr. Oubliette smiled again. I think we're a little beyond labels now, don't you agree? Fuck, boy, laughed Sheriff Beauregard. I never argue with a man with a shingle. Now, come on, fellas. What we have here is a failure to eviscerate. Bill was the biggest, so the other five went for him first. The minister got him just above his left ear with his bat, and the side of Bill's skull crumpled like a beer can. Shit! Beauregard screamed, and the other lawmen laughed and tossed and traded rolls of banknotes between themselves, betting on who would be left standing. The doctor shattered the minister's left kneecap, then, as he collapsed to his knees, stabbed his bat straight through the man of God's forehead. But the terrorist had already cudgelled the teenager to the ground and had ducked behind the psychiatrist. Oubliette turned quickly, but the terrorist was faster. He shattered the psychiatrist's fists, forcing him to drop his bat. The terrorist took three almost casual swings at the psychiatrist, breaking a collarbone and a humerus, then finally getting him in his precious head. The terrorist turned back to finish off the Galone gunman, but the clown had already pushed the length of his bat down the teen's gullet. The clown was still laughing, even as the terrorist took a final swing at him, but the attack missed and the psychiatrist, mad-eyed and raving a polysyllabic death rattle, was clawing his way up the terrorist's back and tearing at his throat with his neat white teeth. That clown laughed and laughed as the terrorist bled out, then pulled his bat free from the child's throat and finished off the doctor with twelve swings to the skull. Fuck! said Richie Beauregard. Is it me, or do these get quicker and quicker? Remember when we had the yuppie take on the hillbilly? I thought that was a speedy contest, but these guys, these guys were pros. The six policemen took out their weapons and trained them on the bloodstained clown, just in case, while they settled their bets and their debts. It was fun, cash in one hand, weapon in the other, blood mist in the air. Donnie, said Richie, I don't know where you found your guy, but he makes me want to run away to join the circus. Beauregard turned to grin at Donnie. Donnie was suddenly wearing a funny red nose. He giggled. Beep, beep, Richie. Donnie shot Richie in the head. Sheriff Richie Beauregard woke up, lying still and calm and in no pain whatsoever in a hospital bed. He was in a private room. There was a window looking out over a river. The sun was warm on his face, and he was shackled to his bed. Fuck. He wasn't in any pain, so he assumed he was on some pretty monumental drugs. That wasn't good. His thinking was probably so messed up he wouldn't even be able to recognise if the contingency plans he needed to cook up now turned out to be crazy. This was not the time to be brain damaged. There were no get well soon cards around his bed, no flowers or gifts, so he was in disgrace. Lifting his hand was like lifting a dead weight, but he managed it and felt his face about a fortnight's worth of beard. Shit, 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 what had happened? What mistake had he made? Donny Hemperstand had always been a nod sort, but then they all were, really. That wouldn't mean that he was liable to turn from gamekeeper to poacher. No, no, this was bullshit. Hemperstand had been a totally committed member of their family. He wouldn't flip. He had brought the Wolfman to their last tournament, for Christ's sake, all the way from Miami. He had taken chances with his livelihood and his lifeblood that night. No, Hemperstand was a rock, the best of them. Detective Hemperstand received a terminal diagnosis from his doctor last week, said a voice. Brain tumour, inoperable. When your colleague, Sergeant Halloran, shot him in the head, apparently that fist of cancer was the only identifiable part of him left. There was a woman, standing at the foot of his bed. She was dressed as a nurse and smiling, holding a clipboard. She smelled of peppermint. Who are you? he asked, his voice frail like an invalid. I'm your nurse, genius. Nice to see you awake again. 
although I did just lose a bet. So did I. Richie tried to smile. What happened? Hemperstat somehow managed to miss anything vital when he shot you in the brain. He did manage to kill two of the others, though. Halloran missed him with his first shot, killed the cop from New York. Gillespie. That's him. Where's Halloran now? said Sheriff Beauregard. The clown got him. Richie felt woozy and, for the first time in quite a long time, afraid. The clown? Neither your force nor the Miami PD knew who he was. Whoever he was, he escaped after he killed your deputy. PD? That's him. So what's happening now? I can explain everything. Aren't you listening? Is this all about you? All of it? Am I allowed to speak? Am I? Richie Beauregard froze. I told you, I lost the bet. I can't just lose bets. I'm not made of money. That monkey shine shot you in the head. You don't get better from a shot to the head. That isn't natural. That isn't fair. I made a bet. They all said you'd wake up, but I told them that doesn't happen, and I was right. That doesn't happen. That shouldn't happen. Wait, please, said Richie. It's just like drowning. That's all, said the nurse as she pressed the pillow over Richie's face. Have you ever drowned before? When I was a little girl. But he was already gone. We're going to press for the death penalty, obviously, said the DA, sharp as a knife and twice as collectible. Governor Spinnaker frowned. Aren't there mental health issues? They found her reading him the newspaper. The DA sneered. They all have mental health issues. Everyone has mental health issues. My mum, she was kicked in the head by her brother when she was three. I'm 33 and she still can't get to sleep at night until she's told me all about her day for half an hour. That ain't normal and I'd still be pushing for lethal injection if my mum smothered a cop to death. I'm not quite sure of your point. What I'm saying is leave the mental health arguments to me, Governor. I just want to be sure you won't obstruct at the 11th hour just because she's a nurse with a mother and you're looking for re-election. Everyone's got a mother, you know. I thought everyone had mental health issues, said the Governor. The DA laughed. They're one and the same. My mum, she writes Christmas letters to her friends every year. She starts the letter in June. June. And by the time she's finished, it's 50 pages long. That's not even the crazy part. The crazy part is that she still writes about what her brother's been up to that year. The brother who kicked her when she was a toddler. That brother who died 20 years ago. Mental health issues and mothers. Everyone's got them. D.A. Janet Weiss had a great reputation and the electorate loved her. Most of the electorate, though, probably never had to hold a conversation with her where she felt they were going to try and steal one of her bodies from death row. That might colour their favourable impression. Don't worry, said Governor Spinnaker. If the jury find her guilty, I won't stand in their way. It's not about re-election, it's about what's just. Now, have the PD found the clown yet? He's in the wind. And how worrying is that? Fucking clowns, there ought to be a law. Tell me about the rest of it. This fight club. No one can turn up any evidence of anyone who was involved, who's still alive, apart from the clown. Beauregard was our last chance. The feds are on it now, of course, and every department that's involved is keeping quiet. No one wants this story getting out. That nurse seemed to know a lot. Crazies. Voices tell them stuff. Governor Spinnaker looked at the DA, not sure if she was joking or what. It was hard to read Weiss, and he didn't like it. It was the main reason he'd never tried anything with her. OK, then. Well, thank you for stopping by, Janet. Please do keep me in the loop. Janet Weiss stood up and shook the governor's hand. Always an honour, sir. Right, yes, thank you. She left the room and Edward Spinnaker loosened his tie. He looked at the chair in the corner of his office, then pressed the intercom button. Trudy, is my brother here yet? He is, Governor. Send him in, please. A thin man, prematurely bold and dressed in the most expensive suit Edward seen in his entire life, walked into the room and gave his brother a kiss. I swear, Eddie, was that Janet Weiss? She is even hotter in the flesh than when she's talking about all the criminals she's going to kill. 
Word to the wise, Walter. If you make a move, make sure not to mention Ma. You mad? Ma's like Spanish fly. She opens legs like you open wallets. I'd consider her ambivalent on the subject of mothers, and she likes to execute the mentally ill. She's killed more people than all the people we found in that basement combined. She might not think you're quirky so much as an entree. Walter laughed. Jesus, big brother, the company you keep these days. Edward looked back at the chair in the corner. How are you, Walter? Can't you tell? Walter preened himself in his suit. Very nice. For whose benefit? The shareholders. God looks spiffy for them tonight or they'll start getting worried. Got to remind them that there'll always be money in meat. The red tie might be a bit much, Edward said. All you politicians wear red ties. What have you gained against mine? Edward punched his little brother on the shoulder. Yours literally has a blood stain on it. <laughs> Occupational lizard. The phrase is, never mind. I need to get a new one anyway, said Walter. The funeral's tomorrow. Edward glared at his brother. Don't start, brother governor. Of course I'm going to the funeral. The optics won't be good for me. He works in my meat plant, our family's meat plant, mind you, and his daughter was killed. Of course I'm going to the funeral. It would look pretty bad for our family, mind you, if I didn't go. I've told you, Edward said. My researcher is excellent, and she says... Walter Spinnaker yawned a groan at his brother. The Spinach family are not fucking related to us. For one thing, they're black. That's just one more reason why. Stop. I'm going. That's just the way it is. Edward wasn't going to give up. Walter, if those parents catch on that they're part of our family, they may want a little more from the family meat plant than just to work in it. Your showing up at a funeral could be seen as your accepting that they are family. Or it could be seen as an act of fucking empathy. Walter, I love you, but no one's going to think that. You spent more on strippers last month than the spinach family spent on food last year. There is going to be a shit ton of press coverage coming our way when I announce, and I don't want to be the story to be the dirt-poor dead daughter relations you pay a pittance to head-fuck cows with a sledgehammer. I don't intend my campaign slogan to be, we're not even white trash. You may be present in two years, but you're still going to be a piece of shit. I'll take that, so stay the fuck away from that funeral. Are you going to tell people about her? Walter pointed at the chair by the window, but didn't look. What do you think? Walter kept his back to the chair. You still haven't found anyone else who can see her. Edward shook his head. Only the two of us can see her, as far as I can tell. I think it's a family thing, a blood thing, since Sarah can't see her either. Maybe I should invite the spinaches over then, settle this once and for all. Don't even joke about it. Edward's tone made Walter freeze. Every now and again, Edward could make his brother afraid of him. And hadn't that always been the way? You know, added the governor, if you brought Walter Jr. down, we could test my theory. I'm never doing that, big brother. Walter had never brought his son down to visit Uncle Edward, ghoul or no ghoul. Edward, somehow, had never noticed this. Or maybe he had noticed and he was just being diplomatic. I'm sure she'd love to see her only grandson. Walter shook his head. I, I, I don't think that's Ma. Of course she's Ma. That hole in her forehead, it's there. And the way she looks at me. When I'm at my desk, she's making sure I'm working hard, not slacking off. When she's in my bedroom, Walter looks shocked. She's in your bedroom now? Yeah. When Sarah's there? Yeah. And it's just like Ma. She's watching over me, just like Ma did. I've had great dreams since she came back. Walter was silent. Walt, take a look. Take a proper look. It's Ma. Walter hesitated, then turned. There, sitting in the chair in the corner of the office, the skeleton in the neat black dress, buttoned to the throat, hemlined to the carpet, 
she turned her head to meet the gaze of the man in the blooded tie. She had three eye sockets now, but every one was heavy with that same familiar disdain he knew from before she had died. Her thick, dark hair was neatly arranged, perfect and proper, and when she looked at Walter he felt his balls tighten with the same old shame and guilt and fear and obligation. Ma, he said, almost against his own will. She's back, Walt, said the governor. She's back and everything's going to be fine. Don't go to the funeral. Be impressive in front of the shareholders. I'm announcing my candidacy next month, and after that everything's going to be hard work, but good work, honest, hard, good work, because Ma's going to be there with us. The skeleton cocked her head to one side and raised her right hand. Edward went straight to her, ducked down slightly, and kissed the long bleached bones. And Walter didn't go to the funeral. And that night, Governor Edward Spinnaker dreamed once again of giant steel eagles blazing fire across the sky to burn to ashes anyone else who made him feel like Mara had made him feel before she had come back to make all his dreams come true. To be continued. <laughs>